Hey, America, check out 16W with Norman. All the self-deprecation and stupidity you can handle, available wherever you download and listen. Rate, share, and review. I'm Chris Cody. Yeah, I feel dirty. I feel a little dirty, Norman, not going to lie. But it's fine. It's not your fault. I did it for someone else, so you're only just thinking, oh, he did it for someone else. I might as as well do it. Maybe you haven't even seen the other ones I've done, and you were just taking a shot in the dark. So I could have probably gotten away with not doing this one, but here we are. Here we are. Hey, guys, what's going on? It is Sunday, uh, January 31st. I'm just hanging out. It's a nice day. Uh, I have the house to myself. Well, Norman's here, but uh, I have the house to myself, so I figured let me just try to touch on a couple things that have been going on that are a little bit crazy. I mean, there's uh, all sorts of craziness going on in the world, but the the first thing it kind of had was this Matt Stafford, um, Jared Goff trade. You know, Matt Stafford's one of those guys. I lived in Georgia. Matt Stafford's one of those guys that was – you know, all the guys I played softball with you know, wouldn't shut up about Matt Stafford. And he's definitely tough. I don't know if he can win. You know, I mean, he's definitely tough. He gives it his all. He, you know, he seems like a leader. Uh, but whether or not he can win, just don't know. You know, I mean, he's been in Detroit. And Detroit's one of those cities that has run talent out of town like no other, like no other organization in sports that I can think of. I mean... Houston's kind of doing it right now, all in like a two-year window. But Detroit is just uh, methodically just grinds people to the to the bone. You know, Barry Sanders, uh, you know, Matt Stafford now just needed to get out. Calvin Johnson. I mean, Calvin Johnson, talk about a, like a, a superhuman. Like if you like you look at him compared to other receivers and he's just a, a totally different superhuman class, and this guy just was like, you know what, fuck it, I, I don't want to play here anymore, I don't want to play here anymore, I don't want my body to get the shit beat out of it anymore, um, t- you know, losing grinds on, grinds, grinds, grinds on you, um, and I, I could just tell you from a shitty, like, my high school, my, my junior year of high school, we were 0-9, and, and we had a bunch of good guys on the team, we just, we just couldn't get it together, you know, we had injuries, a couple guys got injured, and we just couldn't get it together, and like, by the time you got to the end of that season, it was like, exhausting just trying to practice and doing that over a 16 game schedule I you know it's got to be rough um I don't think Jared Goff's the answer I never thought he was the answer I thought that draft class uh with him and I think it was Carson Wentz was one two uh, that whole draft class I think I think the, the the Eagles overpaid to trade up a bunch of shit to Cleveland to get Jared Goff uh to get Carson Wentz and the Rams went and got the you know got uh, Jared Goff and you know, look, it worked out, right? The The year they go to the Super Bowl, he's still under his rookie contract. They have money and resources to pay other talent around them. Um, they And he's a system quarterback. You know, the, you know, Sean, Sean McVay is the guy that's, that's really doing that. I mean, it, golf is completing the passes and handing the ball off. But everything about that offense is, is McVay, the coach. So... I, I, sadly, I, I just don't see, I mean, maybe Dan Campbell can do something with, with Jared Goff and get him, you know, a little bit more athletic and a little bit more, you know, able to break down coverage. Cause I think that's, and look, I don't know. I'm looking at it from a layman's watching TV, but to me, the thing about the, that offense is Goff doesn't really have to, 
the the matchup and the motion is causing so much headache for players that he's going to have his first or second read open. Like it's designed to get that guy open right away, so Goff doesn't have to sit back there and kind of survey the field. Um, now you put Stafford in that role and and you give him time behind that offensive line, and and he, he may flourish there. Now I, I don't think I don't think you know I heard a couple of people say oh they're Super Bowl contenders like pump the brakes, pump the brakes on that. Um, they, they have a good defense. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. But uh, you you see, like in the playoff game, Aaron Donald comes out, and it's like all those good DBs and linebackers don't mean shit if you're not setting the tone up front. And uh, and he, you know, will they be good? Yeah, that division that division's tough. I mean, Seattle's always dangerous with Russell Wilson. I'll get to Seattle a little bit more later, but they're always dangerous with with Russell Wilson. Cleve, um. The uh, Cardinals are coming on, and, you know, San Francisco had so many injuries. You know, they may bounce back. They may end up having Aaron Rodgers on their roster by the time the season starts. So to call to call the Rams Super Bowl contenders is a little bit premature, and that's what ends up happening. Like, an event happened. Like, Monday morning quarterbacks, like Monday morning overreaction they used to do on TV, like something happens, a team loses, and all of a sudden, you know, everybody's, like, making these bold predictions – a trade happens. People are making these bold predictions, but let's not get carried away. I mean, the 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 Lions have so much ground to make up in that division because the Bears are mediocre and they still made the playoffs. So, and I think Minnesota was an anomaly this year. I think they're actually much better than that. Um, you know, so you got three teams in that division that are really good, and then you know you got the you got the Lions kind of trying to poke through with this acquisition, but. The amount of shit they gave up. The Rams organization needs to needs to win a Super Bowl in the, one of the next three years to make it worth it. Because they don't have a first-round draft pick for like seven years. Talk about leveraging the entire future of that organization. Leveraging that to... Make an attempt with a guy. And look, I like Matt Stafford. I started by saying I like Matt Stafford. To make an attempt at a Super Bowl run with a guy who's never won a playoff game. I mean, I don't know. I just I think they totally destroyed their future because. And I remember when the the Raiders really sucked. There was a whole thing like you know how they weight the what a draft pick is worth. Like they there's point system. So that's how they know we'll throw in a first and a third for X guy. And that's how they trade off the picks because of this point system. To give up that many picks in this particular trade is crazy. But to give up, up, you know, the next seven, losing a first round draft pick is huge. Especially like this year, um, they're in the middle of the pack. They would have got a decent mid-round draft pick. Uh, If they're winning every year, then the first round draft pick is really like a second round draft pick. So, you know, you just... But they're not. They're they're not going to be there. So they got to really try to figure out something. And what's going to ultimately happen is, unless Stafford re-signs a Tom Brady-esque in New England home friendly deal for the Rams, they got guys to pay. They got a lot of guys to. I mean, they already got between Ramsey, Donald, and Stafford. They got a shit ton of money tied up. And then you got those receivers are good. So at some point, no first round picks and cal- ca- uh, salary cap strapped. The Rams are in trouble. I mean, the Rams are in trouble going beyond the next year or two. Um, and, and and the NFC is still tough. I mean, you know, Tampa Bay is going to be back, you know, because Brady's going to be back in that cast of characters. I think um, the Saints might drop off a little bit. But, you know, the, the other great indictment with all this going on for the Super Bowl is 
how bad does Jameis Winston suck? I mean, granted, Brady got other tools that Winston didn't have, but Winston's a horrible quarterback, like a horrible number one overall bust quarterback. He's in, in, in New Orleans. So if New Orleans hangs in that division, it's going to be either Winston, 30 interception Winston, or Tyson Hill, who who's a great changeup, but who the fuck knows if he's going to be a good quarterback? Yeah, I mean, I, you don't know. But so the Saints are going to dip. Uh, the NFC East, look, I'm biased, obviously. Um, but uh, but I don't think it's going to continue to be as bad. I, I think the, the Redskins defense is legit. The Cowboys had a ton of injuries. The Cowboys probably have the most talent in that division. Um, the Giants didn't deserve to go to the playoffs. Uh, but they showed signs of improvement in the second half of the season, especially on defense. Uh, and the Eagles, I think, are just dysfunctional. I think they're a little bit dysfunctional from ownership down. Um, not that that's you know uh, ex- exempts them from a successful season, but if anything is shown in the NFL, you need cohesiveness, you need teamwork, you need guys on the same page. You know, you look at the New England model, and uh, you know they had uh, all those good teams there. It's going to be interesting to see who they backfill in their position like there's so many quarterbacks do they I mean New England's not going to give up any kind of capital that Houston wants it's never going to happen um but there's a kind of a domino effect like so say the Jets and Houston change okay Darnold goes to Houston Watson comes to comes to New York um Jets are not necessarily setting them up I don't know if they're necessarily... There's still two teams better than them in that division, even with Watson. I don't care what you tell me. They have no receivers. Uh, nobody... I mean, nobody much better than what Houston had after Hopkins left. Um, the NFC's, you know, weak. So, you know, could a couple of these teams, the Lions, the Rams... I mean, there's always turnover. That's the great thing about the NFL. There's always there's always turnover of teams. You know, there's four teams that end up... That don't make the playoffs, that make the playoffs the next year. So it's a constant turnover, which is cool. Uh, I, um, I'm still not going to talk about Super Bowl. you know, uh, my, my, in my head, my pick is getting reinforced with everything I hear over the last week. So I'm going to see how it is this coming week. Uh, I am going to do a podcast next Friday or Saturday, um, with my neighbor who's an army vet who lives down the street. Um, we're going to try to, to, to do a pod and see what kind of comes up of it. We just kind of throwing around some ideas. So we're going to try to do that. But, uh, Today I wanted to talk about the NFL a little bit. I wanted to talk about, um, you know, we talked about Watson's value. I just, I don't think he's worth that. I think he's a great quarterback. I just don't think he's worth three number one draft picks. So uh, I think that's kind of a, um, an easy one to look at. I'm, You know, as far as my team specifically, the Giants, last year everybody shit all over the GM for you know, trading a third-round pick in a package to the Jets for Leonard Williams. Leonard Williams was the fifth overall pick. You gave up a third-round draft pick in the draft. That look, look, Tom Brady is the you know the always the go-to, the 199th pick, and he's the greatest of all time, and all this other stuff. Um, a third-round pick could go either way, and you got production out of this guy this year on the franchise tag. He stepped up, you know, he, he knew his money was on the line, he stepped up and did it. Now, the big question is, do you sign him to a long-term contract and he gets complacent and nothing kind of happens with it, um, or do you try to go after somebody else? I read something today about signing Leonard Williams and trading for J.J. Watt and, and keeping the two interior, the young interior linemen that they have, but losing one of the guys. So, um, 
this time of year is crazy. Like, I'm going to make up a mock draft, and I'm literally just going to throw shit against the wall. Like, look at a team. Who do they need? Give them the best. Look at a team. Who do they need? Give them the best. And just go right down the line and make that my mock draft number one. All these mock drafts are bullshit. You know, I, I keep going back to I, I love Todd McShay, Mel Kuyper, and eh. um, I love Todd McShay, but these guys literally get paid to guess. Now, it's educated guess. They literally get paid to guess, not one time at how things will pan out, but they get like seven mock drafts between now and April, or if they do it in May this year, I don't know. But, you know, so they get like all these ridiculous mock drafts. Of course, some of the shit's going to be right. I could do that same shit, too, without watching a single college football game. Um, just based on what teams need and looking at boards. So it's like, uh, you know, I, that shit's just ridiculous. And then on, on Twitter, you got these guys who um, who do all these trade scenarios and all this stuff. And, like, there's so much real-world shit going on, that hypothetical fantasy world. I can't focus on that. Like, I can't I, – I, I look at it, I'll glance at it, and I kind of just graze over it because it's – um. It's just, it's all fantasy. It's all made up. So that's uh, that's really where we're at right now. I mean, there's people talking about the coaching changes and who did well and who didn't do well. And there's talk of the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule is the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, instituted a rule. It's got to be at least 15, at least 15 years, maybe 20 years. Um, but the, the premise of this rule is making sure that minorities are getting the opportunity to coach in the NFL. Okay, so... There is a disparity. 70% of the NFL is black. And, like, I think it's 10% are coaches. Like, there's the black coaches. So, on the head coach level. Now, that's not really progress, right? So, like, you don't have any real new head coaches that are, that are black guys that are getting a chance to, to coach at the top spot. But the other thing that kind of gets left off of that on the backside is you're looking at a Super Bowl where I, I think – Five of the six coordinators, maybe six of the six coordinators, are black guys. They're at the, the highest level underneath head coach. Part of the, the knock in the NFL is maybe they shouldn't... I mean, all these teams want to get a head start, right? They want to have their coach in place. So as second the season ends, boom, they can go. It gives them an advantage, you know, if, if any advantage, who knows. Um, and then you got guys that are in the, in the, uh, the Super Bowl coaching... Black guys, coordinators, doing an excellent job that don't get a chance to even interview because, I mean, they can interview, but they can't take a job. So, essentially, all these jobs are being filled before they're actually available to be on the employment line. So, um, so it's kind of a catch-22. You're having this success, and then you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of clocked out of the party. You don't get an opportunity to, to get there uh, unless the team's willing to sit and wait until the Super Bowl ends and you start the next day type of deal. And that that's happened, you know, that's happened obviously in the NFL, but this year it didn't. All the coaching jobs were filled. Um, in my opinion, I think the Jets did okay. I think that uh, that Houston, I, I don't know about Houston's pick. I mean, hiring like a 65-year-old guy who's been around the league for 30 years and giving him his first head coaching job with a disgruntled quarterback and, and no weapons on offense – I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't call that a, a recipe for success. Um, who else? Who else switched this? Uh, San Diego's got a new new coach, and you know they got a quarterback. They got a you know they got a bright quarterback. I mean, the Giants for the longest time were talking about drafting Justin Herbert, and then he stayed in stayed in college another year at Oregon, 
And then they ended up going with Daniel Jones, who I'm okay with Daniel Jones. I mean, I, I'm not one of these guys that needs to see my quarterback be successful year one. You look at Josh Allen, year three, he gets to the AFC Championship game. I don't think year three, Daniel Jones is going to get to the NFC Championship game. But I think looking at him, you know, and this is going to sound, you know, totally not uh, stats-driven, cybermetric, but he looks like he's able to play the part. Uh now he's injured, you know, that's the one thing with Eli Manning that people, you know, people shit on Eli Manning all the time. Like Dan Lebitard just blows Eli Manning up. He's been the last three years. He's washed, he's washed, he's washed, and then bust his balls about the Hall of Fame, looking at his record as 500, and yet listening to him, you know, a couple days ago talking about, well, football's the ultimate team sport. You don't judge a quarterback on wins. Like when you talk about Aaron, when he's talking about Aaron Rodgers, you don't judge a quarterback on wins. Now, I'm not comparing Aaron Rodgers talent-wise to Eli Manning. That's stupid. But, like, listening to that show, as much as I love it, their favoritism is such bullshit. Like, they're all talking out of their ass just like I'm talking out of my ass. There's no difference, except he knows more people in the sports world than I do and has better guests. I only have Norman. But uh, the, the reality is, Eli Manning, yeah, he struggled late in his career. He had no offensive line. He had shitty guys on his offensive line, like this guy Chad Wheeler, who we'll talk about in a second. Um he, uh, th- that was his offensive line, you know, f- uh, guys that were retreads. At one point, Eric Flowers was his, you know, was his uh, left tackle and just couldn't, couldn't, he was like a screen door. He couldn't stop anything. And he, um, you know, Eli just struggled with that. His record's 500. And he gets shit on by the Lebetard show. But Aaron Rodgers, even though his record's not 500, he, uh, you know, he's, he's the best ever. Or, or, or Philip Rivers, his record's pretty similar and he, you know, they, they, everybody blows him on that show. Uh, the reality is Daniel Jones looks the part. Whether or not he can stay healthy, Eli was in every game. You know, the greatest ability of an athlete is availability. And Eli was always available. Was it pretty all the time? No. But you never had to worry for 15 years that your quarterback was going to show up and play and, and be serviceable, be able to read defense and stuff like that. Um, but I think Daniel Jones could do that. I mean, look, he's... My bigger concern is Saquon Barkley. I mean, this guy's been injured two years in a row. He's an animal when he's on the field. He makes plays that are... He's like a cross between between Ezekiel Elliott and like Barry Sanders. Like he has the shiftiness, but the power as well. He just... He's not been healthy. So how do you... You know, his contract's going to come up in another year. And you're going to be like, well, what do we do with this guy? Uh, you know, someone's going to pay him. But are you really willing to pay him? And if you all if you aren't, you're going to end up watching him go to another team and run for 1,800 yards a year, you know, Derrick Henry style. And you're going to be like, "Fuck, we let this guy go," you know. Or the the catch, you know, the other side of it is, look, do you sign him to a giant deal? Problem in the NFL is if you're a running back, you know, you the money's just not there anymore. You know, you see guys like Alvin Kamara come in. I love Alvin Kamara. You know, middle round draft pick. Uh, that's the one thing the Saints do really well. I mean, they they unearth players that fit into Sean Payton's whatever system he has in his mind. They have players that just fit it, and they go out and get them. And Alvin Kamara is one of those guys. My whole feeling, and what I'll talk about in the Super Bowl, is is everything is about offensive and defensive line, and I think that's what's going to ultimately play the role in deciding the Super Bowl. And I think one team has a huge advantage over the other. Um, speaking of offensive linemen. Uh, and this is like a, the shittiest, like the shittiest story you could possibly, um, possibly hear if you're not familiar with it. This guy Chad Wheeler was a like a practice squad, then 
Giants offensive line was so shitty. He actually was on the roster and he was he was start. I think he started like six games or played a handful of games. I know that uh, with the Giants, and then they finally cut him loose when they started to bring in more talented linemen. He picked up with Seattle. He's out in Seattle, and a report comes over. You know this past week. So Chad Wheeler probably. I mean, I don't have his stats or his bio in front of me. I'm guessing he's probably six five, six six. Um, definitely at least six four, about three hundred and twenty pound offensive lineman. That's what they. That's a you know that's a guard or a tackle, a right tackle in the NFL, and that's what he was. And he's dating a black woman, uh, who's like five six, five five, one hundred and twenty pounds. And this piece of shit, you know. Look, and I'm one of these guys. I don't talk to people uh, on the internet. I don't spew shit on the internet that I wouldn't say to somebody's face. Uh, I'd definitely catch a beating with this guy because he, he'd fucking kill me. I mean, I'm, he's a monster. The reality is he's a piece of shit. No matter who, no matter how you slice it up, when this story comes, he requested, sternly requested that his girlfriend bow at his feet. Already the visual of a black woman bowing at a big giant white guy's feet is fucked up. Um, You know, uh, maybe he was trying to make America great again for him. Um... Sorry, I threw that in there. I try not to get too political. Either way, this guy has her bowing at his at his feet. When she refuses to do it, he beats the shit out of her, breaks her arm, and she's laying in bed like unconscious. And he's sitting on the bed next to him like this big ogre with a bowl of cereal, chomping on cereal. She wakes up next to him, and he looks and he says, Oh, are you alive? Like, as if he just expected her to be, to do the dip and be out, and he would just be sitting there with a dead woman that he beat to death, um, and like eating cereal like it's nothing. I mean, there's, there's a sickness there. If there's not some mental sickness from, you know, I, I think the route that their their defense team is going to go is, hey, he's an offensive lineman in the NFL, and it's ultimately going to get focused back on the NFL he took such a beating in the NFL as an offensive lineman, and you know he's had uh, CTE and he's got a brain injury, and that brain injury causes him to have a break or needs some sort of medication to keep it in check. And he didn't have his medication. I mean, that's where I think it's ultimately going to go to. I want to just focus on the fact that it's 2021, guys. If you're hitting women, you're just garbage. Like, can you not articulate a word? to get your point across are you that insecure about your masculinity that you feel the need uh, you or to want the power over someone who's not as physically imposing as you are and, and I don't know if it's a, I don't want to say it's an intelligence thing like I, I don't think it's an intelligence thing I think there's people that maybe aren't as intelligent that just know that that's not right you, you don't hit kids you don't throw puppies out of your car on the highway you don't beat women like i mean that's just that's not male or female white or black that's fucking humanity like that's a level of humanity that is on a different level and i don't think it i don't think it has anything to do with social economical well-being black white uh i don't think it has anything to do with any of those things there's just something a break that happens in someone that they feel the need to 
need to have to put their hands on another human being in general, um, but especially to someone who you, you hold physical strength over. And this guy's a piece of shit. He's never going to play in the NFL again. He's just not. He's, uh, you know, I hope if he's sick, I truly hope if he's sick, he gets help, uh, whatever help he needs to get right in the head so he realizes that this shit's just not cool. Uh, and... He, you know, he he may he may go to jail. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know what he would be like in jail. I mean, uh, mentally off and and just full of all that aggression. Um, and there's another thing to be said too. Like the NFL is besides like MMA, the NFL is like American Gladiators. Like you watch Russell Crowe in Gladiator, and that that time, that sport at that time, that's what NFL players are. You know, and they're just. A, they have to get on the field and step between the, the grass and flip a switch to get to a mindset where guys could have like broken fingers hanging off their hand and they just tape it up and play. The mindset to have that is just not, I mean, for me, it's not comprehensible. I mean, I, I liked playing sports when I was a kid. As an adult, like I look at, I'm 48, Tom Brady's 43. He's five years younger than me. He would have been a freshman in high school the year I graduated or whatever. Like in that swing, this guy's still playing football, getting up to go play in Green Bay where it's freezing degrees after living here in Tampa. You know, like just to think about that, you leave your home and it's like 75, 80 degrees. You get on a plane, you go to another stadium, you're the away team. Granted, there's not a lot of fans there. And you get the, forget the physical and the intelligence that it takes for him to do what he does as his position. The mental fortitude to be able to shut out the elements. And I love that I like, <laughs> I'd be in like a sports bar with dudes that weigh 350 pounds, can barely get out of their chair, uh, and are freezing because they live in Tampa and they need to wear a sweatshirt. Now, I'm, I'm some of these things, okay? Uh, but And they're watching a game be like, oh, what is this pussy doing? Blah, 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 blah. And you're like, dude, what is this pussy doing? You're sitting here throwing three wings at a clip into your gullet. And this guy's in Green Bay beating probably the most gifted, talented quarterback that's ever played the game capability-wise. Now, granted, Aaron Rodgers is a bitch. I mean, I love him. I, I love the barstool stuff he does. I love his talent, all that stuff. He's just a bitch. He runs every coach out of town, bitches about everybody. You know, whatever situation he gets to, he's going to find the flaw in it, and it ain't going to be him. Um, But he's great. And Tom Brady, in cold weather, has the mental fortitude, the physical capability, and I got a guy next to me at the sports bar who who has trouble wiping his ass, going to bitch about, you know, pick yourself up or quit being a baby or stop being a pussy. Dude, just stop. Like, to get a little bit of self-awareness and figure out, you know what, uh, where you're at in life, and where he's at in life, and and uh, rethink your rethink your game plan on the yelling at the TV. Um, but yeah, so that's about all I you know. That's all I'm thinking about for the NFL, just because of coaching changes that happened and these trades. Um, you know, you look at you look at a little bit of crossover for sports, and you're seeing it start to happen. Baseball for the longest time. The contracts in baseball are ridiculous. Major League Baseball doesn't have a salary cap. They can pay whatever they want to pay to players. You know, you saw it for the Yankees for the longest time. That was the whole grip, you know, the, the rip with the money ball stuff. 
Yankees are buying up every piece of talent they can, throwing them together, throwing together a $250 million payroll, and Oakland is scrapping together on a $43 million payroll, looking for ways to get an advantage over just hiring talent. Um, so you saw it You saw it in baseball for the longest time. Players could kind of dictate, no trade clauses and stuff like that. So that was like the gold standard. And then you go to like the NFL, the NHL, and the, and the NBA, the other three big you know, sports, you know, iconic sports that are looked at in this country. And uh, hockey, hockey's just kind of its offshoot thing. I mean, they don't really have the TV stuff that the others have. Um, They do, but it's just not as much. The fan base, you know, here in Tampa, they're excited now because they just won the Stanley Cup. But the fan base isn't as robust as the other sports. Now, Major League Baseball attendance is is definitely dipping because it's older. It's dying off. People attention spans of young children going to a game isn't what it used to be I mean not that I was ever was for me my attention span sucks but I like going to a baseball game like if I'm going to go to a sporting event the sporting event I want to go to is a baseball game I like the it's summer you know the smell of the grass uh something about the concessions in the air uh you know the sounds you hear around a ballpark I like that I like the nuance of watching a baseball game at at the stadium Hockey, I got to watch. And hockey's also pretty decent in in the stadium, too, to be able to follow the puck a little bit better. I somehow can do it there that I couldn't really do it on TV. NBA's great, you know, uh, great to go see a game, great to be at home. Either one, the action is is pretty packed. At the game, it's great to watch the action. The NFL is the one sport for me, uh, partially because my vision is shitty. uh, So unless I have, like, primo seats, I can't really see the action. I'm sitting in an uncomfortable chair. If it gets to be colder months, I'm bundled up. You know, the experience at an NFL game for me, it's just not there. I'd rather do it at home. Um, but uh, but for me, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I used to go to Giant Stadium when I was fat and wear like a parka and be so squoze into the seat that I couldn't move. And then if I had to take a piss, I had 17 layers on. Uh, if anybody's ever been to the old Giant Stadium, the line for the bathroom at halftime would run all the way out to match the concession stand, and people are like tapping their feet behind you, and you finally get to the to front of the line. You go to try to take a piss, and you get stage fright because you're holding down Under Armour, Long John's, sweatpants, two sweatpants, trying to get all your stuff out in position to go to the bathroom, and then you just hear behind you like, And you're just like, come on, kid. Come on, kid. This little fat bastard can't piss. That was my experience at Giant Stadium. So, <laughs> And it was worse for Jet, with Jet games. My brother had season tickets to the Jets. The Jets was the same thing. And, uh, and then worse because I'd be wearing Giants blue at a Jets game. And I'd already take shit for that. Couldn't piss. And then I would go to the... The cylinders, you know, the, the the ramps around the stadium at the old Giant Stadium and watch Jet fans pelt beer bottles and cans at, at unsuspecting people trying to get money out of the out of the center of the cylinder. Yeah, live sporting events is an experience. Uh, I went to see the Giants play the Panthers. When I lived in Atlanta, I drove up to Carolina to see the Giants play the Panthers, got tickets. And, you know, listen, it's one of those things. If you're a New York team and you're going to a city... Fans that aren't super invested know if they're ever going to recoup all their money for their season tickets, it's against the Jets, 
the Giants, even, even the shitty Jets, the Jets, the Giants, or a team that's really winning, Green Bay or Kansas City, you're going to get top dollar and pay for your full season tickets for selling that one seat. So I go to this Carolina Panther game, and we get tickets. We're in the fourth row in the end zone, so we're seeing teams coming in and out of the end zone. And by the th- I forget what year it was. It might have been 2011, 2012. Uh, Giants end up just blowing out Carolina. It was like 31 to 6 or some shit like that. And in front of me is these three guys, this grandfather, the father, and the son. Father and grandfather are Giants fans. Son is a Carolina fan because that's where he grew up. Um, and they're in front of us, and there's a bunch of Giant fans. Like Everybody in this section must have sold their tickets to a Giant fan. Third quarter, you know, the couple of Carolina fan, fans that are fans that are over to the right here are just getting belligerent, like swearing and yelling, and not so much at any one particular person. But then it got personal. One guy came over and started yelling at the the guy, the grandfather, the father, and the son. And everybody's like, "Dude, just shut up! Your, your team's having a bad night. First of all, just let it fucking go. You're gonna pick a fight with an a an old guy and b a young kid. I mean." Check, check where you're at. Like, have a little bit of self-awareness. Um, and finally, he turns to me. And he's like, you, blah, blah, blah. He starts, you know, whatever. He's drunken, you know, kind of yelling at me up from the seat row and for two seat rows in front of me. And it's like, bro, don't be mad at me for buying the tickets and wanting to support my team. When your friend who owns these season tickets comes back next week, bitch him out for selling the seats to us. It, it's not, give it a break, dude. It's It's one of those things. Like, years ago, there was a, a San Francisco Giant fan that, that got the shit beat out of him put in the hospital at Dodger Stadium because he was a Giant fan. I mean, that, that type of shit's ridiculous. I mean, it's one thing... Like, there's certain stadiums. I just... I, I, I won't go to Philly and wear Giants colors. I just wouldn't do that. That's like... That's like just asking... Asking for a fight doing that. Um, but I've been to Boston and wore Braves gear and, you know, maybe had a couple of stuff that might pop off, but nothing crazy. Um... You know, we're going to take you to the parking lot and beat your ass in that jersey. Like, yeah, all right, good. Like from 10 feet behind me or whatever. Who knows? Um, but I've been there. I've been to Yankee games I, where I've not worn. I don't know if I, not in the ble- not in the old bleachers. The old bleachers at Yankee Stadium. You, you don't want to go in there with uh, with some other team's colors. But um, but pretty much pretty much around the I've been to Dallas. You know, Dallas, I went to I went to see the, the Giants play in Dallas at, the, at Jerry World there. The stadium's beautiful. Um, fans are kind of cool until the Cowboys started. A, I mean, it's a combination of two things. One team's blowing another team out. Third quarter, everybody's pissed drunk. And it went from everybody was kind of cordial um, to then all of a sudden, you know, people want to bow up and kind of get louder and louder and kind of lean and kind of give you that, like where they're going to tell you what's what. And Dude, I'm with my wife. If I'm with the six guys I grew up with, if I'm with Brian, Mike, Don, Rich, Joe and Dave, uh, then yeah, maybe maybe we'd we'd have a, a situation. But I'm with my wife, you know. Like, give me a break, go away. Um, so I was uh, off all that. So I was I was talking to a buddy of mine, a guy I grew up with. I've mentioned him before here, my friend Bobby, who grew up on Fifth Street. I grew up on Fourth Street. We both ended up living in Atlanta, probably about ten minutes from one another. I was in Cumming, he was in Alpharetta. So a funny story, my senior year of high school, we are in like sociology or some, something like that, and we're just kind of trash talking. There was a bunch of us in there, and I'll set the picture, like, 
my friend my friend Bob has this. It's like a Firebird. It's blue. It's beautiful. It's, but it's not like a, a a muscle car. It's like the V6 version. Like the Camaros and the Firebirds and the Mustangs, all those kind of years in the late 80s, mid 80s, early 90s, had like a V8 fast, like rocket ship, high horsepower version. And then they'd have like a six-cylinder version, which was like less than that, whatever. So he had that car. It was nice. It was beautiful. I mean, I was jealous. I had uh, my car was, my first car was a 1978 Toyota Corolla in a combination of white and rust was the uh, the, the paint. And um, it was a little five-speed. And before, like six months before I got my license, I was like, it was parked at my grandmother's house. I was practicing first gear in her driveway. It was flat, learning how to drive a stick shift and, you know, getting it together. And, you know, it, I, I made as cool as I could make out of it. I tried to make it cool. Uh, this is back in the 80s where like neon colors on cars was cool and, um, neon lights under the car was cool uh, in Zephyr Hills, Florida. There's still people with, with neon lights under their car in 2021, but, uh, back then it was actually cool. So cars had that. And, you know, so I tricked it out as much as I could to kind of mask it. I was putting lipstick on a pig, trying to, trying to, uh, get the most out of it. And we're in sociology class and I am just, I am just busting his balls. And to his credit, like, and still to this day, his, his, uh, his personality he's much more reserved like we played so i was the i was left tackle and he was left guard at one point then i think we flopped to the right side and we had all sorts of inside code words that we would say on the line to kind of talk about blocking and things like that that's how we communicated in a different code like we were pretty close you know for a while but we i'm just teasing him in class going look your car's an automatic like it's nice but it's an automatic. Like anybody in a stick shift could could power off the line and take you and, and just get enough momentum to go and, and, and out out hustle that car. Regardless of what you know, it's blue, it's beautiful, it's sleek, it's a, actually a sports car. Uh so it 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 devolves to me saying, look, even my car, even my four cylinder Toyota Corolla stick shift can beat your car on any given night, beat your car. This is like on a Thursday probably. It might have been a Friday afternoon where the class was kind of letting up, and I'm just relentless. And he's me and nodding, and he's like, fuck it. You want to race? We're going to race from the White Castle on Route 17 to LTs. Now, LTs, side note, Lawrence Taylor owned this joint or put his name on this joint in his heyday, like, and this is his heyday. I mean, we're talking, this has happened in 1989, 1990. Uh, this is still Giants' heyday. Like, 84 to 91-ish is, like, that block of great Giants teams. LT's at the height. He's got this banging little sports bar with, like, private rooms and, and you know, whatever. Like, I, I was too young. I went in there, I think, once, but it was, like, after it was the heyday. It was something else or whatever. And uh, so we're going to race from, from White Castle, which is kind of Hasbrook Heights, like right at the Woodridge border, all the way through Woodridge on Route 17, all the way through Callstat on Route 7. Uh, actually, it might, you know, I think it's LT's was right at the Callstat East, East Rutherford border. So, you know, it was a good stretch of road. So we're thinking, like, how are we going to do this? You know, like, how are we going to do it? So uh, if anybody's familiar with that area, I mean, it's pretty crowded. Like, you very rarely get, like... Uh, 
like a um, an open shot. And my whole thing with it was I was going to try to get a rolling start, blast first gear, hit a little bit of traffic, and be able to navigate and kind of kind of beat them. So the driving could outdo the clear advantage he had with the car. So don't you fucking know? We're kind of waiting like back a little bit and we're talking in the car and we're like, all right, well, let's roll up now. There's not a lot of cars on the road. We can be the first two cars in and kind of go. And I'm like, fuck. So we roll up to the light. We get there. And just as we both stop, the light turns green and we go. And I take off and I maybe had the lead for about a second or two. Like I took him off the line. Like I, I, my foot went faster. Take him off the line, go. And within, like I might have been like, I was just pulling ahead, and then boom, he was gone. Um, and he must have just, once his car got into the transmission and started shifting and going, and he just took off. So we get to LTs, and I get to LTs, and I'm kind of laboring in like a tortoise. And uh, he blows through everything, and he's there waiting for me. And he's just chuckling, and he's busting my balls. Busting my balls, you know, just kind of never, we'd throw in like occasionally, like this is like the spring of my senior year, we'd be talking about something and he'd give you the LTs type of thing. Um, and it goes on, you know, he's doing it and I'd forget about it and then he'd hit me with it and it was kind of this running joke and then in my yearbook, my senior year, he signs, I bet you know where LTs is now, motherfucker, or whatever he put in there and, uh, and it's been a joke forever and ever, but that whole thing, it like led up to it. A bunch of people were waiting at LTs, and it was embarrassing. But um, speaking of embarrassing high school stuff, so my buddy Otto, Rich Kinkato, uh, who I was in a band with in high school. So I was in a band. So Rob, Rich and Rob, basically like a rhythm section. Like one played drums, one played bass. Uh, they had a great basement set up, like, and their parents put up with us. Holy shit, their parents put up with us loud like we didn't have band practice where we kept it at a moderate tone to be able to kind of get shit right it was the 80s it was hair bands and heavy metal bands and um and it was just basically uh free for all like blasting music like their mom would go sit outside their little brother would go sit outside and we play it was usually the three of us the three of us were together for a long time probably from eighth grade till about junior year after this this particular concert this battle of the bands and um and we had iterations you know we had they were, we had really good talented musicians like uh our buddy kirk one of the most talented guys like could could play things like a virtuoso i mean he was incredible and then we we uh kirk went on to do his own thing and then we had um this guy dom was in the band in the beginning rhythm guitar player he ended up becoming a cop uh he's probably retired living on a full pension and i'm sitting here doing a fucking podcast um and then we had these brothers that played in the band, and we'd like roll in guitar players. And then for this battle of the bands, uh, we played a, we played one <laughs> one summer. I think it was between my sophomore and junior year. Uh, <laughs> we had a concert in my backyard. You know, we laugh and call it Sedita Stock. And we had um, the way our yard was in New Jersey is we had like this patio, and then like we had a pool at another level, and then they had grass behind the pool. So basically what we had done was set up the band equipment on the patio and then people kind of hung out like next to the pool and behind the pool and we did this gig and it was Rob, Rich, Kirk and I and we did like six songs and uh, you know I'd have to memorize these lyrics because I was the lead singer and um, I wasn't quite super fat, I was just kind of 
big boned at that point. Uh, long hair, mullet was the the, the, the thing of the day. Um, so we played this concert, you know, in in the summertime. We you know we went to all our man, my dad's like, look, you can have my dad. All the parties I had at my house, my dad was like, uh, well, if you're gonna do this, you know, it's gonna be loud. You got to go at least get the okay from the neighbors. So we went around to like you know. 10 12 houses on the block and just say hey, listen we're gonna have like a loud concert on you know saturday night it's not gonna be long it's only gonna be maybe an hour um just wanted to give you a heads up so you don't freak out and blah 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 all the parties i had at my house never asked permission i asked permission this is like the one party my parents showed up at. i'm like there's no way i'm gonna be able to have this party a regular party is just a keg and solo cups and i can clean up real quick and do the you know ditch all this stuff out uh uh, basically, a concert in my yard is going to be shipping a whole bunch of musical equipment, setting up a sound stage, having a sound uh, uh, board to manage everything. And I can't do that on a Saturday night with like 60, 70 people in my yard and then clean everything up and have it back out by Sunday. It's going to be tough. So I went the, you know, get the parents' permission route. And we did. It was cool. We did that uh, the summer, summer of my, before my junior year. And, uh, and it was cool. It was the same four guys, like Kirk and Rob and Rich and I were together, Dom in the beginning, then just the four of us. And then going into our junior year, it kind of, I, I would kind of sing whatever. If my, if my voice could do it, it was before my, my balls dropped, so my voice wasn't so deep. I could actually uh, hit a higher, like heavy metal type note and and hold it roughly. I mean, it was still terrible. I mean, it's it, it, we'll see how this goes. It's so terrible. Um but Kirk wanted to do like other stuff. Like we we did a lot of Kiss and a lot of White Snake, and he was so good on his guitar. He wanted to do like different things, and he did some really cool stuff. He did like uh, I think I think we, in this Battle of the Bands, he did like um, a combination of uh, Jamie's Crying by Van Halen, and and it, somebody did a remix of it or had it in the background. He kind of played both songs overlapping each other. It was just cool shit. Like we were just playing. Pick a song, play a song, get the crowd crazy type of thing, blah, blah, blah. And he wanted to do stuff and, and be more creative. And he went and did that. And then we got a guy, I mean, like a lightning rod this guy was. Like, he was just totally crazy. He didn't go to our high school. He was a little older than us. Uh, he was just on the guitar. And he still plays. I mean, he's a, he's truly a musician that actually made his life's work. A big part of his life's work is, is playing guitar. Um, but he just came from a different genre like Kirk was good and he he was more like a Randy Rhodes you know Ozzy disciple like that's the that's the style of guitar playing he hard and and like riffy like he he that's what his bread and butter was and then you got Steve came in and he was more of like a Steve Vai uh disciple like fell from that tree of outlandish guitar solo I mean still strict in what he did but he didn't play the note to a T. He played it with like a, like a uh, like a spice to it. Like he would throw his spice or brand on, you know, what we were doing, and he just made it more interesting. And and you know me, look, I I think more for me it was just having the balls to get up and sing in front of in my yard seventy people at this battle of the bands, probably about two or three hundred people, and not be afraid to, you know, to look silly and 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 I and I've never been that. Even when I was fat, like I'd be embarrassed because I was fat, but I just never really had that uh I, I was able to do that. I, my biggest fear was always just like kind of forgetting lyrics and not being able to come in on the right cue 
or um or just flat out like have a mental block like where you 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 learn like 10 12 songs of these lyrics and you got to get in front of all these people and granted it's dark it's a little bit dark so you don't really see a lot of the stuff but um but just going through it in your head and being able to maneuver around a stage and be able to remember the lyrics that that was my biggest like I'm, I don't want to fuck this up and uh and it was nice with Steve when we played with him if I if if I was kind of slipping on lyrics he would kind of do something with the guitar, like throw a impromptu solo in the middle of a verse. If I forgot like two or three words, he could like do that to distract. So it was good. I mean, Kirk could have done that too, but he was very straight with how he he played cover songs and stuff. And and we did a couple of original songs, and um, and uh, I ended up getting. And I don't know. I, I you know, listen. It's how the memory remembers it versus what it's like. So I actually, Rich sent me. I don't know if we could even see that. It's the Battle of the Bands video vhs tape i have a vcr to convert it to digital so i'm going to do that and put put that battle of the bands out there at some point but uh i like that that whole thing leading up to it was stressful uh doing it was stressful there was some tension with the third band that was in the battle of the bands like it was a little bit of tension with them because uh, they came from the outside and uh, from another school and came in and played and they were real hard they were they played really hard metal which was cool. I mean, that's what you know. That's what I was into at the time. Kind of listening to that all the time, but uh, but yeah, we we had a ball doing that. So I don't know if my memory is going to be the same how I remember it versus what actually shows up on this tape. But our sound guy is this crazy looking like Alice Cooper looking guy, Frank Zappa looking guy. Spider was our sound guy, and he um he says, Mike, listen, do the first song. I think we probably opened with like Slide It In by White Snake or Crazy Train by Ozzy, whatever the first song was. And he said, after the first song, the way this was set up is on one half of the gym was the stages. There were three stages, three bands. And on the other side was the bleachers, which were filled. And there was sound guys in between and there was gym floor in between. So I was probably where our stage ended, maybe 40 feet from the bleachers where it was full. And he says, listen, after the first song, don't go right into the second song. Riff a little bit in between songs. But when you do riff, get every single person out of the bleachers and and basically invite them, strongly invite them to come and be by the stage and be in front of the stage. So we had a stage where it was like a platform and then there was a platform that came out the front. So it was like a T and they could all fill in this the spots next to that, like inside the T. And... Uh, and we do the first song and it's loud and you know my mullet is in full effect and it's rocking and uh we do the first song and I'm like man everybody's too far away you got to fucking come down here and and I swore on mic in front of my entire school and faculty I got called to the office for that after this and got called to for basically inciting what could have been a fire hazard riot by bringing everybody down to the front of the stage. So they all came down to the front of the stage. We ended up doing like a song or I don't know if it was the one song or two, but after that, we basically got I got the sign from the from the people in charge that yo, this isn't cool, dude. Uh you need to um get everybody back peacefully and continue your show. So I'm I'm dying to see how it translates to that. I don't really remember. I mean, I that was 1989, it's 2021 and I have definitely put chemicals in my body that would prevent me from remembering the details not today but 
through those last 30 years uh, that have probably delayed my ability to fully visualize exactly what happened on that tape, but I'm, I'm going to get a chance to. So we're going to see. I'm going to convert that and play around with it and uh, maybe post it on the, on the pod page. Um, but uh, that we got going on. And then uh, last thing I wanted to talk about is uh, a little bit of COVID, sort of about COVID, but um, really about the effects of COVID. Like my brother-in-law on his pod does a lot of granular detail about the actual disease itself and what's fact, what's fiction, what the data numbers look like. Um, this is more of a, an emotional discussion about COVID, okay? Um, two of the areas that, that get pretty overlooked, one is, is school, Right, so I don't have any kids. I don't have any grade school kids. I don't have children at all. But the effects, I know for me, if I had to learn visually through a computer monitor, now look, I'm not the brightest guy in the world. I've readily admitted my shortcomings in the intelligence department. But I don't think it's a lack of intelligence as it is. It it was difficult for me to learn. Like if I had a kid... I would stress upon them just enjoying reading because I just never really enjoyed reading. You know, like I'd wait for the movie of whatever it was. You know, Algebra 1, I'll wait for the movie and then I'll figure it out. Um, I I just didn't get into the reading and diving deep into the reading. Uh, But like if I had a kid, that's what I would stress. And for me, if I had to do it visually over a, a monitor, I just, with all that being said, I just think we're creating a generation a generation of children who will have a deficit in learning. Now, the cream will always rise to the top. I don't dispute that. I think that you'll, you'll have some of that. But the actual capability of downloading data to a kid when they're not in a room, I think there's going to be some, some shortcoming there. And more importantly, I think there's going to be a shortcoming which... I think what happens with a lot of homeschooled children where they're, they're just awkward. Like there was a family in New Jersey uh, that lived down the street from me. There was like six of them. They believed in the church. They believed in God and they homeschooled. And the kids were super polite, but socially awkward, like just socially awkward. And I think that's a, that's a byproduct of homeschooling when you, don't, when you don't have a lot of the outside activity to be able to socialize. Like it's the same thing with the dogs, right? Like when they're puppies, I try to take them to the dog park to get them socialization skills once they've had all their shots because I want them to be able to acclimate and be comfortable in a situation. Where homeschool kids were that kind of awkward, you know, didn't know how to fit into a social situation when there was 10 kids, we're creating a whole generation of kids now, however long this goes on and shutdown stays in effect, where they're homeschooled and they're losing that interaction of being in the classroom to be able to have that direct interaction with their teacher, to be able to horse around with their friends. I mean, there's a component to that that's important, you know, to be able to build a bond, to be able to be in recess and have arguments with your friends and be able to work it out. And sometimes working it out as a kid meant fist, you know, throwing down and, uh, and knowing, you know, do, do, you know, this is how I act or I don't act and being able to work through those things. Homeschooled kids rarely have that unless they're involved in a litany of social things outside of the actual education part of it. But now these kids here that are, are in school are, are we're building a deficiency into their functioning capability. So 
everybody wants to refer to a, a whole generation of people as snowflakes because of the sensitivity. Now add in sensitivity already and lack of social capability on top of that. So those two things combined, it, we're looking at a difficult, a difficult group of people that in 20 years from now will be holding jobs of importance. 30 years from now will be holding jobs of power. Um, so I'm 48. I'll be 88 by the time they really can do any damage. So I, I'm not going to be here at 88. So I'm not super worried about it, but it is something for my niece and my nephews and any, uh, you know, children that are coming up at this point. Hopefully we get to a point where there's some normalcy. And if normalcy is wearing a mask all day in school, that's what normalcy will be. And kids will acclimate to that. Um, probably much easier than adults acclimate to it. But it, it, there's just not that interpersonal relationship that goes on. I mean, think about, say you're, say last year you're going into fifth grade you're, or sixth grade. Kind of, I don't know when kids hit puberty now. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things about kids hitting puberty earlier because of preservatives and food or whatever that bullshit is. I don't know if that's real or not. I know for me, at, I'm 48. I think I started to kind of hit pu- puberty the end of fifth grade, early sixth grade. Sixth grade is when it was like, it went alarm went off that girls were in the room. Um, could you imagine being in sixth grade, hitting puberty, and having to be homeschooled and not be able to play little league with your friends or interact with girls and have a crush on them or you know pass them? And I don't even know if kids pass notes in school. I'm showing my age, um, to, but to have that interaction that doesn't exist. So now. Flash forward your four years or five years or six years when you're now a freshman in college and you don't know how to approach a girl. You don't, I mean, shit, I, I grew up in a school and I had trouble approaching a girl. Could you imagine being kind of left to your own devices and making your own decisions and then all of a sudden you're thrown into a situation where there's, for me, like girls living on the second and third floor of my dorm? I'd be walking out of the shower from my dorm in flip-flops and a towel and there'd be girls in a bra walking down the hall next to me. That was culture shock in college. Um, could you imagine not going to school and even interacting with a lot of girls leading up to that? That, that to me, is, is a kind of a worrisome thing. And the other thing that, that really gets left by the, the wayside is people, and they started talking about it over the summer when we were already like, like three or four months into this thing, and all of a sudden it dawned on people about people in recovery who were recovering addicts and alcoholics um or i mean even even you know another one is gamblers like could you imagine i'm a gambler i'm addicted gambler i can't stop gambling my work hours are cut so i have less funds available i'm gambling to try because i think i'm good at it and i'm gambling to try to make up my my mortgage and uh i can do it online now in new jersey so it's basically i don't even have to leave the house i just have to download an app to fix my vice and uh i can't go anywhere now, granted, early on there was no sports, so there wasn't a lot of shit to gamble about. But once that all came back, that you know, so gamblers, addicts, alcoholics, um, all these people, part of what their recovery is based in is the fellowship of those A's. A's meaning NA, AA, GA, CA, HA, and about 137 other A's. Legitimately, that's what I believe there is, somewhere in the 130 range. Those people who need access to their A's, to their to their anonymous meetings, now don't have access to them because churches are closed. You can't gather groups more than a certain amount. 
So starting in March of last year, these individuals who maintain a healthy lifestyle by having access to a fellowship that allows them to vent their feelings, regardless of what you think of whether or not that's frou-frou-y shit or not, it works for people, um, and now that's been taken away from them. So there's no longer an ability to have you know a, a fellowship of people that can identify with what you have going on and maybe help you work through your itch to drink or your itch to use drugs. Um, and that's kind of taken away so that that doesn't exist anymore. Like people don't, that group of people don't have that. Now, one of the things about the A's is they're anonymous. So there's no real way. Here's, here's the catch 22. These programs work for people. It's been shown time and time again. However, there's no true data to show how they work because they're anonymous. So there's no way to go and say, okay, here we're at an AA meeting. There's 100 people. We've taken a roll call of 100 people. We've entered your names. So we have your name, and we're going to identify you by your the last four digits of your phone number or your sobriety date or your um, clean date. You're in the system now. And we're able to track. You've been in the system for 30, 60, 90 days up, oh, you you relapsed, you drank or you used drugs. Now you start over again. And now your data gets captured as someone who's a one-time relapser. And then a two-time and a three-time and a four-time. There's no data to show that. What makes those fellowships work and why they're so successful, even though there's no data to show how successful they are, is there is no judgment. There is no um, lack of compassion for someone who relapses because the other 12 people in that room are very susceptible to the same situation. So what happens is there's more empathy, there's more acceptance, and people are able to go in and out if they choose to. But ultimately, if people are, even the people that are drinking and going to meetings or using drugs and going to meetings, if they're using the meeting to help offset their ability to function even if they are using they're not dying they're surviving um and the hope is in in that situation is that if they hang around long enough and all this stuff i'm talking about hanging around and going to this is an in-person face-to-face meeting you walk in someone gives you a hug and welcomes you to a new way of life and that is taken away so now If you're a drug addict who's seeking help from March of 2020 and upwards to today, my understanding is that there's still quite a bit of facilities that aren't allowing gatherings. I mean, Florida's a little wide open, so it's not too bad, but places like New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, um, my understanding from friends of mine is that a lot of those meetings are shut down. Now, we live in a great technological world. There's Zoom meetings. Okay, uh, I don't know about all of you, if you've been on a Zoom call, Zoom's great. I mean, listen, talk about a company that was muddling along with the, uh, you know, the other ones that are out there, the FaceTimes and the, you know, the, the different uh, platforms for doing a go-to meeting and shit like that. Zoom's kind of piddling around over there and all of a sudden a pandemic hits and then Zoom is a, a household name. And uh, Zoom, if you're on a Zoom call... It's essentially like 
10 people, uh, like a meeting for work. I have 10 people on the call. I see them all on the screen or they have their logo. And when they want to talk, they unmute, talk, and then remute. So basically what happens is on, a, on these meetings is it's a whole bunch of one person talking and a whole bunch of silence and that person stops talking and then a bunch of people chime in until one kind of gets the grasp and then it goes to silence. There is no, there is no um, flow to how it works and there is no empathy. There is no welcoming hug. There is no I get you in my eyes type of deal when people walk into those meetings. Um, and there's a whole series of that from the addiction and alcohol alcoholism standpoint that we are really, um, and again, there's no data. My, my understanding from people I know is that people are relapsing. People are dying. People are using and, um, you know, and after having time away from active addiction or, or using alcohol, had time clean from it, living a good life, and then don't have access to these fellowships. They're isolating, and uh, they relapse, and they use, and, and people are dying. That's one component to it. Another component to it is, you know, stay in your house. Don't, um, you know, don't spread the virus. Wear a mask, all that stuff. What if I'm Chad Wheeler's girlfriend, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, and you're telling me to lock down, and I'm locking down with a maniac who's making me bow like a slave, uh, uh, treating me like a second-class citizen, all terrible optics on the outset, and then I I can't leave because I'm on lockdown. I'm in an abusive relationship, and I'm stuck here. I'm told I can't go anywhere. Um, Those are people in this pandemic, besides the half a million people that have passed away, there's a whole other group of people that are high risk of dying, mental abuse, agony, physical and mental agony from being in a situation where they don't have access to things that they, they rely on to be able to, to function in, in our fast-paced, hectic, uh, overrun society. That Those are tools people need to, to survive. Uh, you're in an abusive relationship, how do you get out if you're on lockdown? I mean, I'm sure there's ways to do it, but not every person's going to leave. And now you're putting two people in close quarters with one another. I mean, uh, when I was married to my ex-wife, I'd go to work, she'd go to work, we'd come home, and it would be like a data download of the day type of deal and and kind of hang out through the night. Um and even that, you know, I mean, my ex-wife's really cool. Even that got old for me. Um, as nice as she was and as as stimulating as the conversation was, the mundaneness of it wore me out a little bit, you know. And I blame me getting divorced 100% on me. I It, it had nothing to do with her. It was me. Um, issues that I had in my head. Uh, she, you know, she did nothing wrong. It was all me. Um, but to now think about... Instead of you go to work, I go to work, we come home, we chat, we watch TV, eat dinner, and talk, blah, blah, blah. Now you have individuals five days a week during the work week, both working from home, constantly on top of one another, uh, and then add in day-to-day household stuff on top of that. Uh, Add in other outside things that are involved in your day-to-day at home when you're on top of each other. 
that's during the work week. And then it's 24-7 round the clock, Saturday and Sunday. So you are essentially spending 24-7, 365 with somebody in close quarters to them. You got to really seriously have an affection for that human being or the ability to say, I need a timeout. Um, I, you know, I, do I think I have some special magic potion on how to make a marriage work? Fuck no, I do not at all. Um, but the ability to give the other one space to do what they want to do or need to do to be able to, to, to make themselves whole. Everybody needs that time. Um, that's a, that's a big difference. You know, that, that's a bigger, that's a big difference now, but there's a whole group of those people that are struggling in this pandemic. And then you don't even want to get into, like, I don't even want to get into politicizing it of like what stayed open, what closed, what state stayed open and why they stayed open, what states closed and why they closed and what's the political uh, connection to all that stuff. What's happening to the economy, how it's, how it's dwindling, uh, you know, from people being unemployed, unemployment's through the roof, it's the highest it's ever been. Um, all these other factions of it I don't want to get into because they're the they're the um the obtuse topics that everybody hits on. Those are the glaring, this is in front of our face. A people are dying, B people are losing jobs, C people um are whatever these other things are. So like my, my stuff is like a tertiary view of suffering besides the other two things that are at the forefront of what everybody talks about. And it's truly a shame. I mean, that stuff kind of gets left behind. And, and we're going to see between the educational stuff with the young kids and, and people that are in some sort of recovery or rely on a fellowship or a 12-step program to be able to deal with their day-to-day those are two groups of people that I think we're going to see either a lot of uneducated kids or a lot of lacking, like, uh, you know, substandard education of kids. And, um, and, you know, and a lot, look, look what's going on, COVID alone, uneducating children, killing our elderly and playing psychological warfare besides the physical on people that are, are suffering from addiction or alcoholism or depression. So... I'd like to, I have a buddy of mine, um, and we've talked about it briefly. I'd like to have him on to talk about it a little bit more detailed, uh, you know, because he works in a facility. He, he, he sees the front line of it on a day-to-day basis. So I definitely, um, I definitely like to have him on just to kind of get a better understanding of the actual, you know, not actual numbers, not specific numbers, because we don't have that, but at least to kind of gauge from his you know, where he's at in his occupation, what he's seeing, or or, uh, is a rehab just being booked wall to wall because people are relapsing and need to get into a program? You know, I don't know. Uh, So I'd like to find that, kind of find that out. I think it's cool. So um, thanks for hanging for the, for the past hour or so. I hope some of it's funny, some of it's interesting. I, uh, I, like I said earlier, my neighbor, Alex, and I'll let him kind of tell his story a little bit next week. Uh, this guy served our country uh, heroically. He um, was injured serving our country and is in a wheelchair. Uh, and he's like the the most active, one of the most most active human beings. Uh, I follow, you know, following his Facebook stuff. Him and his family are doing stuff like Scott. Like this guy. All right, I'll tell you the one thing about this guy. Okay. 
besides all the stuff serving your country and, and, and helping to provide freedom that allows me to sit here and talk shit for an hour and 20, um, he, this guy, he's, he's skydiving. Like, not just tandem, hey, I'm going to test out skydiving. The guy doesn't have the ability to use his legs, and he's doing fucking solo jumps. Like, he's been doing this and putting in an effort to make this happen over a period of time, and now he's doing solo jumps, and he's, you know, it's just incredible. So I have a ton of respect, A, for anybody who serves serves this country, braver men than I, uh, people who put their life on the line every day, tons of respect. I, I don't have bad shit to say about them unless uh, they choke somebody out for eight minutes. Then, then I, I kind of would, I, I, I've actually said that, you know, that's a scumbag, uh, just a scumbag in a, in a, uh, a good position in a, and making a lot of really good people that, that serve and protect look like shit because uh, you're a fucking flake and a racist and a scumbag. Um, but uh, this guy's doing things. So I got mad respect for anybody that's serving. So I got respect for him right out of the gate from that. But the fact that my thumb hurts from, from hitting the remote over the past three months after surgeries and this guy's fucking skydiving, it makes me feel like a load. But uh, I am getting back. I've been back at the gym now for... Two days. I am so sore right now. I can, standing up. I, if I had to stand up, it would be a grunt. Um, it, it's super painful doing a full body workout, trying to get my body acclimated back a little bit. Uh, my forearms. I can't really stretch my arms all the way out because I just, they're tight. Um, and it's a great feeling. I mean, I'm not bitching about it. I'm sore. I'm grumpy over it because of the maneuvering, but I'm so happy. It's the most incredible feeling. Um, what happens if you work out for a long enough period of time, it's almost like you have to trick your body or really overdo it to create that like no pain, no gain to create that muscle working to the point where you get some exhaustion in that muscle and it's stiff working out for an extended period of time. That kind of goes away. I mean, you'll occasionally get it if you do like a crazy workout, taking six months off from the gym, picking up. 15 pound dumbbells like 15 pound dumbbells and doing some maneuvering my whole body is just like sore like I laid in bed like I was in a, like in a coffin just did not want to move didn't I had to, of course I have to pee in the middle of the night at this age I have to pee twice in the middle of the night uh getting up the energy and the bravery just to roll out of bed to take a piss uh, that's a, that's rough it's it's painful but um so that's coming around I'm um when I did my video on my transformation that I'm working on I was about 185 pounds. I'm up to about 195. Uh, it's going to be a slow process for gaining some of that weight back that I lost. But uh, we'll see. I'll have some updates on that. I'll have Alex next week. We're going to talk about the Super Bowl and some other topics that we're throwing around. I uh, hope you guys uh, dug some of this. And then uh, my promo is Chris Cody from the Dan Lebetard Show uh, doing a shout-out to, to Norman. But uh, I've been playing that on the lead-in and lead-out. So... Uh, Enjoy, guys. Have a great, enjoy the rest of your Sunday and um, have a great week. Hey, America. Check out 16W with Norman. All the self deprecation and stupidity you can handle available wherever you download and listen. Rate, share, and review. I'm Chris Cody. Yeah, I feel dirty. I feel a little dirty, Norman, not going to lie. But it's fine. It's not your fault. I did it for someone else so you're only just thinking oh he did it for someone else I might, as, I might as well do it maybe you haven't even seen the other ones I've done and you were just taking a shot in the dark so I could have probably gotten away with not doing this one but here we are it's my-
Ain't nobody